Welcome back to the history of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has had a colorful and rich past. Therefore, it is full of events and stories that can represent European history like a microcosm. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows. What's in store for you this episode? Well, without further ado, we deal with the establishment of the Archdiocese of Cologne. Although it was more of an upgrade of the previously existing Diocese of Cologne. But, well, you might think, what does an upgrading of an ecclesiastical administrative unit have to do with the city in which this bishop had his seat? With Cologne, that is. That's what we explore in this episode, because the resulting ecclesiastical organization that Charles the Great and Hildebold, the Bishop of Cologne at that time, established around the year 800 was to last for exactly thousand years. And no, that is not a metaphor, it is really a thousand years. The old Archdiocese of Cologne was to remain in existence until 1801. We'll take a very close look at how Cologne came to be elevated to an archbishopric. But before we dive into that, here's a little random fact about Cologne, as always. The Lommertsheim in Cologne, Deutz, is a pub that everyone in the city knows. The building, which supposedly looks rancid at first glance, is considered by many to be the most Kölsch of the Kölsch beer pubs. So well known, in fact, that even the US president once wanted to drink a beer here. But what the most powerful man in the world didn't know, a Cologne pub owner doesn't let anyone tell him how to run his business, except from the Lord or the Cologne Health Department, maybe. In 1999, the World Economic Summit was held in Cologne. To wet his whistle, the US Secret Service asked the pub owner Hans Lommertsheim by phone if the US president could have a beer there. Mr. Lommertsheim, the owner of the pub, did not believe his ears at first and replied that he would rather be the emperor of China than that the currently incumbent US president, Bill Clinton, would come here to his little pub. But when the pub owner was convinced he was really talking to the associates of Bill Clinton, the US Secret Service was completely surprised by the reaction of Mr. Lommertsheim. He just said, you want me to close my pub only just for the President of the United States? Are you crazy? If I did that, I'd have to kick out my regular customers tonight. I can't do that. No, I won't do that. And that was the end of the conversation. This is the first and last time I heard that a president was not welcomed in a pub. Now, the impression should not be created here that the people of Cologne or the pub owners are not hospitable. Bill Clinton was supposed to get his beer in 1999 in Cologne. He got it at the Malzmühle on Heumarkt. But his thirst was probably not that great. He only drank half of the mild Kölsch beer from Cologne and then switched to a Coke. Well, at least the Coke was also from a Cologne beverage company. Let's get to the intro. I hope that you have brought more thirst with you than Bill Clinton did in 1999. Thirst for more knowledge and nice stories about Cologne, of course. 
let's get straight to the point. Around the year 800, the city of Cologne was elevated to the seat of an archbishopric. The bishopric of Cologne became the archbishopric of Cologne. While surrounding bishoprics were hierarchically and organizationally subordinated to the archbishopric of Cologne, these bishoprics were Bremen, Münster, Minden, Osnabrück, as well as Liège and Utrecht. But wait a minute, an attentive listener who is also geographically well-versed in Europe might say, Bremen, Münster, Minden and Osnabrück are all German cities or bishoprics that lie far east of the Rhine. And didn't the Saxons live there who had always successfully resisted Frankish rule, remaining independent and, above all, kept their pagan faith? Right, that's right. The Saxons were indeed an unruly bunch for a long time, so from the point of view of the Franks. But Charles the Great did not get his nickname by chance. In 30 long years of war, he had completely subjugated the Saxons in the end. And in this way, he pushed the border of the Frankish Empire to the River Elbe. Suddenly, for the first time in the history of Cologne, the city was no longer on the edge of the respective dominion to which it belonged. Like in Roman times, Cologne had been right on the border, on the Rhine, which divided the Roman world and the non-Roman world. At the time of the Franks and the Merovingians, the right side of the Rhine of today's Cologne as well as Deutz had indeed been dominated by the Franks. But, as I said, in the wider plains of what is now Germany, the Saxons were in charge and had been a constant threat settling there in the course of the migration of peoples in late antiquity. Charles had waged war against the Saxons for over 30 years, from the years 772 to 804. Well, but that is not the whole story. We have to go a little further back in time to understand the establishment of the Archbishopric of Cologne, back to the middle of the 8th century, at a time when Charles was just about to be born at all. As you know, the military conquest of territories and the conversion of the subjugate populations went hand in hand with the Franks. The largely illiterate Frankish elite was too happy to use the well-connected priests, bishops and structures that the church maintained as a remnant of the defunct Roman Empire. The Franks quickly realized, as the Romans themselves had once done, that by spreading and proselytizing Christianity, they could also effectively secure their rule and maintain their power. Especially in newly conquered territories, the establishment of a unity of religious confession, so under the Christian faith, was an important means of consolidating new political influence. In the process, the Franks received support from unexpected guests. In the 8th century, among others, a Christian missionary named Winfried entered mainland Europe. He was part of a missionary wave that was to cover all of Central Europe, whereas in the 6th century itinerant Christian preachers had come from Ireland, it was now Anglo-Saxons like Winfried from England who set out to missionize the peripheral regions of the Frankish Empire, above all the Frisians on the North Sea coast and also the Saxons in the northeast of Cologne. But unlike their Irish counterparts 200 years before them, the Anglo-Saxon missionaries were not ascetic loners who wandered about, for the Anglo-Saxon missionaries went directly to existing church structures in the Frankish Empire and offered their help there. In 719, 
Winfried even went directly to Rome in Italy and offered his services as a missionary to the bishop there, so the Pope. Pope Gregory II was visibly impressed and gave Winfried a new name for his coming lifelong task. This name is far better known than his native name, Boniface. If you have listened carefully, you will realize that we had already mentioned Boniface very briefly in passing in an earlier episode. However, the name Boniface received was purely by chance. It was the day on which the church commemorated Saint Boniface, a Christian martyr of late antiquity. During his mission, Boniface quickly became the most important church reformer in the Frankish Empire. He founded several churches and monasteries. But whoever thinks here that Boniface came to his work only with the Bible in his hand and a nice smile on his face is mistaken. The good itinerant preacher liked to take a radical hand himself in converting the pagans. In Geismar, in today's Thuringia in central Germany, Boniface personally cut down an oak tree dedicated to the god Dona before the eyes of the horrified thousand pagans present. You may do not know Dona by his Germanic name, but his Scandinavian name from a very famous movie universe. His name is Thor. The felling of the oak was meant to show the powerlessness of the pagan Germanic gods. But what does all this have to do with Cologne? Well, the Pope in Rome was visibly taken with the work of his missionary. Thus it came about that the Pope decided as early as the year 745 to elevate Cologne to an archbishopric, at that time still located at the eastern edge of the Frankish Empire. The missionary operations of the Roman Church were to be coordinated and carried out from here with the establishment of an archbishopric. Of course, the Roman Church was not only concerned with the alleged salvation of the souls of the people still to be converted in the east of Cologne. The bishop in Rome naturally wanted to use it to expand his influence north of the Alps as well. The Pope was not yet the all-powerful Pope that he later became and that he still is today as the head of the entire Catholic Church. But many things played more and more into the hands of the papacy in Rome. Since late antiquity, Rome was only like one of the five important cities of Christendom. Of course, the first was Jerusalem, where Jesus died and was resurrected. Then there was Antioch in what is now Turkey, as an important place of early Christianity under the apostles Paul, Barnabas and Peter. Alexandria in Egypt, as one of the largest cities in the Mediterranean, was considered one of the most important Christian centers early on. Last but not least, Constantinople, today's Istanbul in Turkey, was of course also important. He was the capital of the Christian Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire, which had survived the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. And Rome, which as the former capital of the Roman Empire was, considered also an important Christian center anyway. So far, so good. But in the 8th century, there was a bit of a problem for Christianity. Jerusalem, Antioch and Alexandria had been conquered in the meantime by the rapid Islamic expansion coming from Arabia. Now, that doesn't mean that there were no Christians left in those places, but under the new Islamic elites, the Christian clergy there simply could no longer compete with the remaining Christian centers, especially on a political level. So only Constantinople and Rome remained. In the mutual relationship, Rome was at that time clearly 
below Constantinople in political terms. The Eastern Roman Empire, with its capital Constantinople, still dominated the Italian peninsula politically and militarily in many areas. Eastern Rome, or the Byzantine Empire, saw itself as the protective power of the city of Rome and the Christian Church. Of course, this also meant that Constantinople expected in return to have far-reaching influence in the eternal city on the Tiber. Above all, whoever became bishop, so the Pope there. In the last episode, we already briefly discussed the fact that the papacy was looking for a way out of this predicament. The rising, now Christian, Franks north of the Alps were a welcome gift. The rising and now Christian Franks north of the Alps were a welcome gift. Already under Charles the Great's grandfather Charles Martel, at the beginning of the 8th century, the relationship between the Franks and Rome had intensified. Establishing an archbishopric in the Frankish Empire in the city of Cologne in the year 745 can therefore also be understood as Rome's attempt to bind the Frankish Empire more closely to itself. And with this description of early medieval papacy, the circle closes again because for the Frankish bishops in the year 746 or 745, I messed those numbers now up in my head, but never mind, they certainly saw what was in store for them. The Pope wanted to put them, the bishops of the Frankish Empire, under the supervision of an archbishop, Boniface, who was directly loyal only to the Pope especially since there was a rumor that Boniface himself had encouraged the Pope to make him the chief shepherd in the Eastern Frankish Empire. Now you have to consider Boniface was an Anglo-Saxon, a foreigner that just came from some place those people had never been in the Frankish Empire, most of them. And you know since Cunibert that many Frankish bishops came from the local Frankish elite and they don't want someone foreign or someone being elected in Rome or chosen in Rome to be their head teacher. In today's view of the Catholic Church, which is completely structurally oriented towards Rome in every conceivable way, this was not yet the case in the early Middle Ages. Bishops at that time were anxious to limit as far as possible any influence from Rome, and so a storm of indignation broke loose. The Frankish bishops appealed to King Pepin, the father of Charlemagne, and the plan was dropped. Had the plan been implemented, it would have made Cologne an even more important spiritual center in the Frankish Empire as early as the 8th century. With Charles the Great, however, the situation changed completely in the late 8th century. The relationship between the Roman papacy and the Frankish kingdom became more intense than perhaps ever before in the history of the Middle Ages. At least, in this constellation of power, Charles' long reign over 46 years consolidated his power to such an extent that he was clearly superior even to the bishops in his own realm in terms of prestige and power. Even though our Bishop of Cologne at this time, Hildebold, was in charge at Charles the Great's court and was one of the most important people in the Frankish Empire, there was never any doubt as to who had the upper hand here. Charles the Great, who became bishop in the Frankish Empire, was significantly influenced by King Charles. The same happened to the papacy. Charles took advantage of the weakness of Pope Leo III, who had been in office since the year 795. 
In the early Middle Ages, influential families in Rome decided who was elected Bishop of Rome. The family of Leo's predecessor did not begrudge him the office of Bishop of Rome and tried to get rid of him. Although we are in the Middle Ages here with all the stereotypes that come with it, openly assassinating a pope would have been a serious offense then as well as now. But a pope could be declared incompetent if he could no longer perform his office. Thus, on April 25, 799, Leo's opponents pounced on the pope's horse during a procession in Rome and tried both to blind poor Leo so that he would go blind, and at the same time to cut out his tongue so that he would no longer speak or let alone preach. In this yet brutal way, an incapacitation of the Pope would be achieved, but the plan was amateurishly executed, and Leo escaped almost unscathed from this attack. With the help of some Frankish nobles who were staying in Rome at the time, the Pope fled north across the Alps and saw the protection of the Frankish king. This circumstance ensured that, for the first time in Cologne's history, in the year 799, a pope visited our city on the Rhine. For Charles was at this time, in late spring, of course, in the war against the Saxons, north of Cologne. On his way to Charles's palace in Paderborn, Pope Leo III must have made a stop in Cologne. There, the Bishop of Cologne, Hildebold, received him. How exactly this visit to Cologne took place, or whether Leo simply traveled on hastily to Charles the next day together with Hildebold, you can guess, has not been historically handed down to us. When Leo and Hildebold arrived in Paderborn, 180 kilometers northeast of Cologne, the Bishop of Rome did not exactly receive the response he had wanted. Instead of taking up his cause immediately, Charles was rather cool and neutral. The king was even more interested in showing the skilled pope how much he was spreading Christianity here in Saxony by his conquest with fire and sword. Not only that, after a while, Charles even sent for emissaries of Leo's enemies from Rome and received them for audiences here in Paderborn in Saxon land. They raised serious accusation against Leo. Among other things, they accused the Pope of adultery and perjury. Instead of doing right by one side, Charles decided to do something similar to what happened to Hildebald in the saga when Charles traveled to Cologne to decide the election of the Bishop of Cologne. Hopefully you remember, otherwise you will listen to the last episode again. Charles now traveled to Rome about a year later with the chaste Pope in tow to make a decision on the spot. But why the long wait? Why don't you go immediately to Rome? Well, the former metropolis of one million inhabitants consisted at that time of only 30,000 inhabitants who lived far from the ruins of the ancient city. Numerous swarms surrounded the city, which in summer often caused terrible diseases in the region, such as malaria. Our bishop Hildebert of Cologne will suddenly have accompanied the king as his chief official. The journey across the Alps and through northern Italy went smoothly for the Frankish delegation. The fact that Charles had defeated the Germanic Lombards in northern Italy a few decades earlier and subjugated their kingdom, thus his empire now directly bordered Rome, was certainly helpful, I guess. 
you surely realize I am abbreviating some things here because about Charles the Great, one could speak just again so much and extensively. Somehow Leo and Charlemagne must have agreed on the way to Rome or after their arrival there on something because the following events don't allow any other conclusion in my opinion. First, Charles held court against Pope Leo in Rome. The accusations presented lacked any evidential value in the eyes of the Frankish king, and so Leo was acquitted by Charles. Yes, unimaginable for us nowadays, but here a foreign king acquitted the Pope in Rome. This shows again how much this constellation has changed radically in the course of time and how powerful Charles the Great had been. For Leo, was acquitted only after he had publicly sworn an oath of purification before God and Charles, of course. Something like, I swear that I have done nothing indecent. You may laugh at this now, but in the beliefs of many people of that time, when such an oath was made, it was expected that God would personally punish the person on the spot if they perjured themselves. In comparison, the blood column in the church of St. Gerion in Cologne could pass God's judgment on sinners, so according to the legend. But Leo survived his oath of purification and was so free from any guilt. This happened on, de this happened on December 23rd, in the year 800. And, Christian or not, you surely know at least, most of you, what takes place two days later, right? Okay, on December 25th, in Rome, Charles, and also the Pope who was found free of any guilt, celebrated a Christmas Mass, which Leo, of course, presided over as Bishop of Rome. As king and quasi-proverbial lifesaver of the Pope, Charles naturally sat in the front row in the church in a place of honor. As the Mass progressed, Leo then suddenly approached Charles and crowned him. In doing so, he the Pope proclaimed Charles, the King of the Franks, as the new Roman Emperor. Wow. Much has been said about this coronation of Charles on Christmas Day in the year 800, and therefore I will let this be. But from this act and the tradition that was to follow from it, developed a medieval empire, later better known as the Holy Roman Empire. I know on the internet and in memes always circulates Voltaire's, the French philosopher, saying that this entity, the Holy Roman Empire, has never been one of these three points. I have a different opinion on this, but it doesn't fit in here at all. We are still with the Frankish Empire of Charles the Great in the year 800, and Voltaire lived in the 18th century, so 900 years later. It has often been speculated whether Charles knew he would be crowned with a title like that. Funnily enough, that had never actually expired. The Roman Empire in the West had indeed perished around 475, so nearly 325 years earlier. However, in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Eastern Roman Empire, which we call the Byzantine Empire, lived on with its capital at Constantinople. True, they tend to be more Greek and also spoke Greek as the official language. However, if you were to ask what the citizens there saw themselves as, the answer would have been clear, a Roman. 
Thus, in Constantinople, they were not at all enthusiastic about Charles's title of a Roman emperor, but the Byzantine Empire in the East just had other domestic problems at this time and could do nothing against Charles's elevation as emperor. Personally, I do believe that Charles knew he was to be crowned as emperor on this day. It was de facto only a title, but it corresponded to Charles's nature to give this title to his reign, which at once belonged to the great Christian world empire that the Roman Empire had been in the end. Okay, that was another nice excursion into Frankish history. It's time to get back to Cologne. But only again as a summary, the Empire of the Franks and the Church in Rome formed a tandem from now on. One could not survive without the other. The Empire provided military protection for Rome and saw to the Christianization of the conquered territories. The Church in Rome, in turn, as a remnant of the defunct Roman Empire in the West, saw itself as empowered to confer the Roman imperial title and provide the ecclesiastical structures with which Charles's empire could only function. That connection really made it a wholly a Roman empire, even though nobody called it like that at this point, whereby there was no partnership of equals here at that time. The empire clearly had the upper hand. Whoever wanted to become pope had to have the blessing of the Frankish king, I'm sorry, I mean the emperor, but that was to change later in the course of the Middle Ages, and we will come to that, but it will still take some time. But in this spirit of cooperation between those two, the Archdiocese of Cologne was born at the same time. Just as Charles's coronation as emperor was probably planned some time before, the elevation of Cologne to the seat of an archbishopric had certainly been planned by Charles and Hildebold some time before as well. But the master plan where it says how this took place, unfortunately does not exist. Charles and Hildebord certainly had on their minds that 50 years earlier a first attempt by Boniface had failed to establish an archbishopric in Cologne. Thus, the elevation of Cologne to an archbishopric probably came about gradually. You already know the first stage. In order to allow Hildebord to leave his territory to accompany Charles on his travels and, of course, military campaigns, Charles, with his good connections in Rome, had already had Hildebold appointed as Archbishop by the Pope in the year 791, but this title was only bound to the person of Hildebold for the time being, not to the office of the Bishop of Cologne itself, if you understand what I mean. Then we know about a rich donation of metals from the year 795, which Charles made to the Bishop's Church of Cologne, so the pre-predecessor building of today's Cologne Cathedral. This could also be an indication that the elevation to Archbishopric was prepared. At the latest from or around the year 800, Cologne was elevated to the seat of an Archbishopric, and there was a reason for this. For in 804, Charles had finally completed his conquest of Saxony, which had lasted for more than 30 years. These newly conquered territories had to be integrated not only on an administrative level, it was also Charles's religious goal that all his new Saxon subjects should convert to the Christian faith as quickly as possible. And he did this by any means necessary. Let us take a brief look at this. Charles 
conquered the territory of the Saxons in what is now northern Germany and parts of the Netherlands using the most brutal means available to a ruler at that time. For more than 30 years, the same script was followed. In winter, there was always a deceptive calm, but always in spring a mighty Frankish war machine broke out and cut a bloody and burning swath through the Saxon lands. If the autumn came to an end, the campaign rested until the next spring. Then the game began again. In the first year of the war, in the year 772, Charles made a real drumbeat by destroying the most important sanctuary of the Saxons, following Boniface a few decades earlier. The felling of the so-called Irminsul, a tall tree that supposedly supported the firmament of the world, was intended to prove how false the pagan Germanic gods were. Since the site of the Irminsul was also the meeting place of the Saxons in the area, its destruction was also considered at the same time as a sign that politically a whole new wind was blowing here. Why did the war against the Saxons took so long, directly in Cologne's neighborhood? The Germanic Saxons themselves were decentrally organized people and used guerrilla tactics against Charles's attempts at conquest. The motives for Charles's three-decade war against the Saxons are part of a lively debate, actually tributary as direct neighbors to the Franks in part since Clodwig's reign in the early 5th century, the pagan Saxons repeatedly invaded Frankish territory for raids, just as the Germanic Franks themselves had once invaded the Roman Empire on the left bank of the Rhine several centuries ago. However, the Saxons could not harm the city of Cologne. The city was too well fortified and the surrounding area was also protected by Frankish settlements. But Deutz on the other side of the Rhine from Cologne fell victim to Saxon plundering at least once in the middle of the 6th century. So did Charles first only want to stop the raids of the Saxons? Or did he want to subjugate and Christianize them directly? The latter was the case in the end, whereby this, if planned, took quite a long time. Again and again, the Saxons revolted against the subjugation of the Franks, destroyed churches, murdered Christian priests, and returned to the pagan Germanic faith, although they had partly already been baptized Christian in the meantime and partly had proclaimed their subjugation to Charles before. But when his army left, they revolted again. The Frankish king, of course, absolutely did not like this. In response to the Saxons' defiance, Charles allegedly had several thousand Saxons beheaded in a single day in the village of Verden in what is now the German state of Lower Saxony in the year 782. Not exactly Christian, but in Charles' understanding, they were lost anyway, having renounced the divine order. Despite Christian baptism, they had become pagan again after the withdrawal of Charles's army. Despite their supposed submission before to Charles, they had thus broken their oaths before the king and before God. However, this bloodbath of Verden is now disputed. Both scientific camps, which either doubt or believe the story, are opposed to each other in historical research. But let's not digress again. Charles the Great's Saxon wars are long and multifaceted. In the course of their war, 
the Saxons eventually see a need to better network and organize themselves. Under the Saxon nobleman Widukind, they increasingly faced the Franks' even open field battles. But even Widukind recognizes in the course of the war that his Saxons cannot win in the long run. So Widukind decides to meet Charles and agrees to be baptized. Widukind's godfather is none other than Charles himself. In addition to the baptism, Widukind swears allegiance to the Frankish ruler. The Saxon nobles gradually follow Widukind in this step. And Charles shows himself with comparative leniency. Loyal and converted Saxon nobles are allowed to keep their power in their ancestral lands, as long as they recognize Charles as the ruler and then pay the tributes. This retention of the local Saxon elite in this area is important. This fact was to become important, especially for Cologne. In some parts of Saxony, uprisings still flared up here and there until around the year 800, but the great resistance was broken. I mentioned Charles's Saxon wars here only as a footnote, so to speak. I really shortened things up. But Charles's conquest as far as the Elbe and bordering Schleswig-Holstein in the northern part of Germany, now today's Germany, have a lasting effect on the history of Cologne, Germany, and even Europe as a whole. For behind the Elbe, a white plain actually stretches all the way to Russia, ideal for the later further way to the east in terms of cultural and economic exchange. Unideal because of the potential for conflict due to the lack of geographical borders such as large rivers or mountains up to our present time. On the Elbe River, the Franks encountered the Slavs, who had pushed westwards into the formerly Germanic area in the course of the migration of peoples when Germanic peoples such as the Franks and the Saxons themselves had previously moved further west in late antiquity. In the north, the Franks north of the Elbe encountered the Scandinavian Danes. So to secure their territory at the respective borders I just mentioned, the Franks built wooden castles. The border between Christian Europe and the pagan north or east of Europe had thus shifted a long way, far away from Cologne on the Rhine to the north and the center of Europe. As you know, military conquest and Christian missionary work went hand in hand with the Franks and especially with Charles. Thus, numerous bishoprics were found in Saxony, the territory Charles had just conquered. However, due to the young age, the weak structures and a still largely pagan local population, these were hardly able to function entirely on their own. It was precisely for this reason that the Archbishopric of Cologne was created. It should first supervise the already existing bishoprics of Liège and Utrecht by previously subjugating the pagan Frisians in the recent past, west of Cologne. At the same time, however, it was to have supervision over four newly created bishoprics in the Saxon lands. These were, as mentioned in the beginning, Bremen, Münster, Minden and Osnabrück. The places don't mean anything to you, I can understand that. So check out my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. There I post a map in the companion post of this episode. Check it out. Also, don't forget my interactive city map, where I mark 
many of the places and buildings discussed here in the course of this podcast. Link to it in the show notes or on my homepage. With the exception of the Bishopric of Bremen, which itself became an archbishopric a few decades later, this spiritual and partly also secular political construct of the Archbishopric of Cologne existed until 1801, almost exactly a thousand years to the day. This made the Archbishopric of Cologne one of the most powerful pillars in Charles' empire, and later on in the Holy Roman Empire, a power that was completely filled by the Archbishopric of Cologne at the time we are now, of course, Hildebold. And even Charles raved about Cologne, which he called, as already mentioned, the, I quote, the most elegant bride of Christ after Rome, end quote. The next episodes will show what enormous impact this will have on the city itself. Charles the Great had reached his peak with his coronation as emperor in the year 800. He had conquered a great empire in Europe on every corner you can imagine. His reign had brought the political and economic center of gravity in the then-known world from the Mediterranean north across the Alps to Central Europe, a development that is still noticeable today. He had unified the empire religiously and culturally, albeit uh, by not entirely peaceful means. Despite everything, he was truly the great. So great, in fact, that every generation since then has judged him in its own way, sometimes instrumentalizing him for its own ends. In the year 814, Charles died at the age of 67. Hey! That was a great age for the time, especially for someone who constantly fought in battles. When he was buried, a Roman marble sarcophagus was used to hold his body. One would not have expected anything else from a Roman emperor, which Charles was. Charles was buried in Aachen Cathedral, the palace or Pfalz, where he preferred to stay at the end of his life and it then became quasi the capital of the empire during his final years. Charles is buried there to this day. In the year 1988, people wanted to know, are there really Charles' bones in the shrine in Aachen Cathedral? It was not until 2014 that the results were made public, on the 1200th anniversary of the emperor's death. The research team came to the conclusion that it is very likely that these are really the bones of Charles. According to the research team, Charles the Great was 1.84 meters tall, which meant he was no giant for the time, but he still probably towered over most people of his time. Until the end of his life, according to his bones, Charles had had a healthy body and had been a slim man weighing 78 kilograms. He probably died of pneumonia. <laughs> That's a hot were to pronounce. His best friend, the Bishop of Cologne, Hildebold, had given Charles the anointing of the sick and the last communion in 814. Hildebold himself died only four years later in 818 and was buried in the Cologne church of St. Gerion. And I must confess that I did not find his grave when I visited the church. Then I have to go there again and open my eyes. Or maybe his grave got lost during the course of the centuries. I have no idea. Hopefully, you can see the photo of it in the companion post of this episode on thehistoryofcologne.com. Just to conclude this episode, 
the elevation of the Archbishopric of Cologne represents a general trend that began from the 9th century in all of Christian Europe. A hierarchization within the church took place. Rome, in close partnership with the Frankish ruler, sought a tighter church organization in Europe. The Franks supported this in order to also bring even the bishops in their realm, who had previously acted quite independently under better political control as well, or even to fill the bishops' post themselves with their own relatives or confidants. From Charles, at the latest, the partnership between the empire and Rome became apparent. Constellation that, and above all the future party conflicting views of what this should look like, will also shape Cologne for several centuries. Let's leave it for today. As a bedtime snack, I found the following observation interesting. The territory of Charles the Great's empire corresponds almost, almost, exactly to the territory that would have the European Economic Community, which was founded in 1957. France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Italy, and Western Germany. The contemporary witnesses probably knew that too, exactly where Charles received his imperial dignity, the countries just mentioned signed the treaties for better cooperation in Europe, in Rome. The EEC would later become first the European Community and then the European Union. Charles's empire, however, would disintegrate into three parts just 29 years after his death. The EEC, or rather the Today's European Union is already 64 years old. Sure, all these facts and figures are just playing around, but I thought it would be a nice conclusion with this. Next time, we'll take another last look at Hildebold, or rather, something that Hildebold had built. Or was he not the building contractor for it at all? We'll have to take a closer look at that. We'll talk about the old Cologne Cathedral that is being newly built at this time, because, you know, later comes the new Cologne Cathedral, which we can look at today. So the old cathedral is now newly built. Okay, let's stop it here. The previous bishop's church is replaced from the year 800 on sometime by a new Carolingian building in the architectural style of the Romanesque period. This old Cologne Cathedral is the predecessor of today's Cologne Cathedral. So magnificent was this old cathedral that it served as a model for many churches in Europe for over 400 years. And maybe, if I don't slip up, we can take another look at the cityscale of Cologne itself, as it may have looked like in Carolingian times. Thank you very much for listening. I have not edited this episode, <laughs> obviously, because I'm still here talking and recording. But I believe this is quite a long episode again. Those episodes are getting long and long, and I'm really sorry about that. I always try to make them shorter, but in the end, it doesn't even ma matter. Next time, I hope I'll do it better. So, thank you very much for listening up to this point. This means the world to me. Thanks for your support, for the nice comments on social media, on Instagram. Oh, Facebook is dead anyway, and Twitter, I don't understand. Recommend me further. This is the best thing you can do for me. Until then, all I can say is Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>